Okay, Revelations 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning rumbles, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Welcome to the pod, post-mill podcast, the podcast of post-mills. Yes. Uh, engaging the culture with God's justice with Scott and Pete. That was Revelation 11, the last little bit. This is what we're aiming at. And uh, today we're going to have an interview with Stephen C. Perks, who is an author and a good friend of ours now, um, living in the UK. And uh, he's got a new book out called the uh, How to Disciple the Nations. It's called Disciple the Nations. So we're going to take a deep dive into that book. And uh, we will also post links down below um when it comes to finding him and his books and his audio books yeah this one's on audio and you can get it pdf and you, buy the book too you yeah. can it's everywhere yeah we got to get it out there because it's a great book i've been sharing it lib liberally online to people who are just like i don't know what you're talking about or yeah. i don't agree with you it's like ah, just listen to this yeah and the podcast is about uh, yeah steven talking about that book Absolutely. So this episode is brought to you by, it's going to be brought to you today by uh, Sublime Creative Metal Solutions. Right. This is today. Now, yeah. uh, we make metal stuff. We make solutions to your metal problems mm -hmm. is what we do. Awesome. Now, I do, I have been really enjoying making signs recently. I've get, been getting into doing signs with LED lights inside and everything oh, like yeah. that. And uh, there's one back here. You guys have seen it before. This is one of my first ones. I've done some other ones. But if there's any Bitcoiners out there that want to have a sign like this, then let me know on Twitter and then we can try to put something together. Uh, I don't know how much yet. For Bitcoiners, it'll be super fair. Now, for all of you people who like uh, Ethereum, friends and things like that, which I don't have any. Um, if you want something like this, it's going to be um, 10 Bitcoin each. Um, but so make Is sure that, that you fair? send. Absolutely. <laughs> if they're going to buy Ethereum, then it's fair that I charge them 10 It's on Bitcoin. their own heads. I mean, they have to spend one Bitcoin in order to move Ethereum around on the network. It's that broken. So if they, if you want something, um, Bitcoiners, you get a great discount. Ethereum, Ethereum guys, you, you get the, the 100 Bitcoin, 100 Bitcoin. Let's go with that. Wow. Yeah. So you That's can have huge. it. You can have it. Uh, you guys are all busy, you know, like with your NFTs and stuff like that. So that's <laughs> there you go. All right. So we're going to get into uh, our interview with Stephen C. Perks and then we'll catch you at the other side. Hello. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? We're good. Yeah, we're good. Um, so why don't we get into your book? Um, Want to talk about it in two parts. Uh, kind of what's the problem 
and then what's the solution? So why don't you start by um, sharing your idea behind the book, and then we can get into asking you some questions. Well, this book really originated in a talk I gave in July, and um, I was wanting to get this message out, and particularly over the last two years, with all the negative stuff, all the lockdowns and all that, I felt the really need was to concentrate on the positive. Now, you know, we have to look, we have to do a critique. It has to be done. Uh, but if we don't move on to a positive alternative, uh, we just get into a spiral, I think. So I, for me, it was about trying to articulate the alternative. And I think there is only one alternative. And what it became clear to me was that the world today is behaving just as we expect the world to behave without the influence of Christianity. Nothing that's happening, the fascism, the authoritarianism, all that's not new. You only have to read the history books to see it's there. Um, but when there is a Christian consensus, it has an effect, it exerts an influence and rulers uh, feel constrained by it. Mm. And I think, you know, pretty much throughout history, we've had rulers who would have liked to have been without those constraints and to various degrees were, but with a strong Christian consensus, there is a level of constraint among political rulers. Over the last 100 years, probably more than that, probably more than 150 years, we've had a slow withdrawal of Christian influence from the world. But like a lot of these things, it's, it's, a, it's an exponential curve. It goes slowly, 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 then whoosh, it goes up. Now, we've reached the exponential phase of the curve in which Christianity has been uh, uh, gradually withdrawn as an influence from our culture under the influence of the church mm. herself uh, and the leadership of the church. And what's happened is that the heresy of heresies, as I call it, has reared its ugly head again. And that really is dualism. Mm. Now, I think that if you look back in the history of the church, dualism has been a problem from the very beginning. Gnosticism has been a problem from the very beginning. But it takes many forms. And I think that this dualist heresy is the only one that's never been decisively dealt with. And it's like a many-headed monster. Um, only particular manifestations if it had been dealt with. But, but once they've been dealt with, the many-headed monster just grows another head and comes back because we haven't got to the root of the problem. And so what we've got is an idea that really, if you think of dualism as seeing reality in two stories, the upper story and the lower story, dualism sees reality in that way. And what happened was that the, the dualism of the Greek or Roman worldview um, what I called the, well, I didn't, I didn't coin this term. Uh, I, I read it in a book by Anders Nygren, um, Agape and Love, but he calls it the Alexandrian worldview. Mm. The idea um, of this dualism, but there is also with that, the whole chain of being thing, but that's a bit complicated to get into. That came, that was very, very influential, even in the early church and a lot of the early, church fathers accepted a lot of pagan philosophy and sort of en masse without really critically thinking it through from a, a biblical perspective. And that dualism came into the church and particularly because Neoplatonism strongly affected the Western world, strongly affected the Western church. 
And um, that dualism, if you like, between spirit and matter or form and matter became um, really strong in the church as a result of, I mean, Thomas Aquinas gave it its formal baptism in a sense because he conflated that with the Christian faith. And so instead, right. what we got was a nature grace dualism. Right, because it, there, there was, you do have a, a chapter in, in your book called Gnosticism or the Kingdom of God. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and obviously for many people maybe listening to this podcast or um, maybe they don't have any idea what these different terms mean. So we've got terms like Gnosticism, uh, Pietism and Dualism, which all, you know, they're cut from the same cloth and they're basically rooted in Greek philosophy, is that correct? You've got the spirit, which is good, but you've got the body and the creation, which is essentially bad. And we need to try to escape from the physical and enter the spiritual. And this is why Christians talk about, you know, going to heaven one day and then that's the end. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, that, that basic that basic dualist perspective entered into the church very early and it's been highly problematic and you know there have been heretical sects that have been condemned by the church um, but the church herself has still embraced this now this dualist this dualistic perspective can work its way out in different ways um, and what we have today it's not exactly in gnosticism you see god didn't create the world the, the world was created by a demiurge a demiurge or a, a, an inferior god if you like um and the purpose of salvation in the gnostic perspective was to escape from the lower levels up to the higher levels so that the soul which is like a, a divine spark is reunited with the source from which it came, which is the divinity. Mm. And so, in actual fact, um, the idea of Christ becoming flesh was anathema to these dualists because, you know, that just couldn't happen, which is why in the Bible it says anyone who denies that Christ has come in the flesh. This is a um, criticism of well, what we would call Gnosticism and dualism. Because ours is a historical faith. Christ has come in the flesh. The second person of the Godhead has been incarnate in human flesh. So this goes right back to the beginning. And the Bible itself is critical of this kind of dualism. But uh, it's continued. And if you like, modern sort of pietism is a Protestant version of this. Um, And it sees the world as being divided into the upper story and the lower story. And I think this is really the source of a lot of our problems. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea that, well, let me give you a practical example. And I I don't know if we talked about this before. In 1967, the Archbishop of Canterbury said, when the abortion issue came up, when the abortion act was passed, he said, I knew it was wrong. I believed it was wrong. But I didn't, I didn't think it was my place to interfere in politics. Now, that's a good example. Christianity is not about this life. It's about the spiritual realm. 
don't interfere in politics. Mm. But in actual fact, that's not a biblical principle at all. Right. And it, the outcome is disastrous because what it means is the Christian influence is withdrawn from the world. Now, when you, when you withdraw the Christian influence like that, the world is going to start behaving like the world does behave when there isn't any preservative, when there isn't any salt to preserve it. So what's happening today is just what I expect. The problem lies with the church, particularly with church leaders, right. which are, they're almost, I mean, I just don't know how to describe it. It's, it's like a, a real antipathy to anything that um, brings a faith into a, into a real-world situation. Right. So you, you do have, um, th there's a number of chapters, especially in the part one of your book, that really um, try to flesh out the, like you've pretty much fleshed out three or four chapters of, of, of your book there in, in one statement. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, throw this at you, Pete, and if you want to jump in at any point, yeah. go ahead. But you, you've described um, pietism and the people during, let's say, let's take Paul, for example. Paul showed up in Athens and started to uh, speak to the Greeks there. And some of them were like, oh, new, new information, right? This, this is cool. Others were like, this guy's nuts. Um, mm -hmm. why, would, why would we want to redeem or restore this world? Everybody knows mm -hmm. you have to try to escape it. Now, we as Christians, we understand that happened during that time. But now coming through history, now in history, instead of Christ by himself incarnated in the flesh, footstooling all of his enemies under his feet, which, of course, he did um, judiciously on the cross. But then he continues to do that throughout history in his people. So he gave us the same commission that he had, which is to Christ's enemies must be footstooled, like 1 Corinthians 15 says, but also it's us who are supposed to tread the enemies of God under his feet. So now if that pietism has come through, right, even though the Christians can give lip service to the fact that this world will be redeemed, but yet, of course, practically speaking, we still are pietists because we're not essentially um, engaging the culture. Um, Pete and I, uh, amongst many other weird and wacky things that we do out in the streets of our city, we go out now, and Pete's done it more than I have, but we've gone out to do sign evangelism, where we, we have a sign with some Bible scriptures on, and we oh, stand right. next to the road, next to the mall, where all the people are driving in and out and hold up signs like, Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, you have some Bible scriptures and things. I wrote a custom one this past week, which said something to the effect of um, Christians, stop waiting for Jesus to come back and go and do something. And then I have some, some scripture verses underneath there. And, but it seems to be that the, the pietism is so um, in, um, built into us now as Christians that people can literally read the statement and not understand it. So we had a conversation yeah. with a woman who was, who was going to a uh, mandatory vaccination um, uh, rally and uh, we were talking about how it's important for all of us to, to like work really hard, you know, in order to try to change culture. And she goes, and even though she was out there trying to change culture, what she said as a Christian was, oh, it doesn't matter because Jesus is coming back any day. And I was like, okay, so you're doing the post-mill 
culture building thing, but you saying that you believe something completely different. At least she was being inconsistent with her belief and actually yeah. doing something. But most Christians don't do anything in the world because they have the pietism, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I was very graphically reminded of this about 10 years ago. I, I went to see as many of the pastors in the borough that I live in as I could to try and talk to them about how we could as a, a, as a group of Christians in this borough really start um, living as an alternative social order, alternative community that models to the, to the world what it should be. And, I, and there was just no interest because their interest is in church services yeah. and, and, and in meetings. And um, one guy stopped me in mid-flow and he said, stop. He said, Jesus is coming back. Don't you know Jesus is coming back? So I said, well, they said that to Martin Luther and they asked him, well, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And he said, well, I'd plant a tree. In other words, well, it takes hundreds of years for trees to grow. Mm. Uh, well, big ones anyway. <laughs> and and the, that's the point. If you really believe that Jesus is coming back tomorrow, you think, well, this world's it's like the Titanic. What, what's the point in rearranging the, um, the, the the seats on the Titanic if it's going to sink? But you see, what people don't realize is um, we are Christ's body on earth. Mm. What Christ does, he does through his body on earth. Amen. So, so he says to us, go forth and disciple the nations. And I don't think Christ is coming back till the nations have been discipled, because it says in uh, Revelation eleven fifteen, behold, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Um, so to me, that is the, the Great Commission and Revelations 15 are the alpha and the omega of eschatology. Mm -hmm. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. Mm -hmm. And um, so we have to do that. We have to disciple the nations. And so um, like you disciple and on an individual basis, you have to model for the disciple what, what the Christian life is. So we have to model to the world what what true society should be and i think i've talked to a pastor a while back too and i think the problem a lot is the terms like what is a nation oh yeah because he said to me we don't disciple the nations because we can't baptize nations all right no. okay. so there's a real confusion and even what does the church what like what is the church like there's very few people like, that understand mm -hmm. the ecclesia part of it that it's an assembly mm. there's uh yeah. a lot of problem with leadership like you say in the book you know yeah. there's just so much confusion on the on the term level yeah understand what these terms mean um because they even changed the the actual wording of you know disciples make disciples out of the nations that's what they'll quote yeah. and then you point yeah. it out that's not what the bible says no, they just come up with excuses and it's really hard. Like, how do you, um, I share your book, I guess, but it's really hard to, when there's so much confusion. I agree. It's hard. I, I remember talking to a guy who was a, a pastor, a minister and explaining all about the great commission and what the, what it actually says. 
and how the modern translation is misleading. I explained it all clearly and you said, oh, no, he said, um, I just think it's saying we've got to go into all, you know, nations and make disciples. In other words, even though I had explained it to him, mm. he, he couldn't take it on board. And I think what this is, is that people are so drilled. They get this teaching drip, drip, drip every week. It becomes their worldview and their worldview is stronger mm. than any particular doctrine that challenges it. So we have a difficult task, and ultimately, of course, we have, to, we have to explain, we have to expose error, we have to preach the truth, we have to stand for it, but um, we also have to pray for the Holy Spirit to open people's minds. Right. And, and, and the problem is that people are, and especially today, because in the church today, there's a real anti-intellectualism, there's a really, real anti-mind kind of viewpoint. And, um, well, you're not going to get people, if people don't think they're using their minds to understand something is important, it's going to be very difficult to get anywhere. And there's that famous saying from Samuel Butler's Hudibras, um, a man compelled against his will re <laughs> retains the same opinion still. Um, and, and this is the problem. So, um, it, it is difficult. Um, of course, one of the problems, if you talk about the word church, people can use the word church in three different ways in the same sentence, meaning three different things without realizing it themselves. And I don't say that in an accusatory fashion. If I've been, I've been guilty of that myself because the, the term is so problematic, what it's come to mean, why it was used ever to translate um, the word ecclesia into English, goodness knows. Um, but of course, these problems do exist in languages that derive their word for church from ecclesia. Mm. So, like in, Spanish, in, for, in, for example. Yes, in, English and German derive it from Kirikon, and, and it's Kirike or Kirke, and of course, it's stuck that way in Scotland because they still refer to the Kirk in Scotland. Um, but Sp They're Spanish also backwards up there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. They're also backwards up there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you may well say that I could. Simon Lowe won't like that. We'll get comments from him. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, so, but Spanish, Italian, uh, French—they all derive their word from ecclesia. Mm. Um, the Romance languages, but they, I, I pretty much think they still have the same problem. And it's an unclarity, it's, it's a lack of clarity in our thinking. And it's, but it's been a long time in the making. And um, we just have to be really rigorous now about defining this because what's happening is that the, the Christian faith is not having a, a preserving effect. Right. I mean, it should be doing more than that. We should be actually converting the nations. We're not doing that. We're not even preserving them. The nations of the West have gone into, re the Great Commission has gone into reverse, and the, the nations of the West are de-commissioning um, themselves as Christian nations. That's what we're in the process of seeing now, the de-Christianization right. of the West. Of course, salt is a preservative, right? When you don't have the salt, then of course 
um, like uh, like the people said to Jesus when Lazarus came out, he said, careful, he stinketh. Well, yeah. the, the nation's <laughs> stinketh now because of the, pre the preservation is gone, of course. That's absolutely Matthew, Matthew 5, 13. Um, so when it comes to um, going back, getting back to your book, and actually, obviously, everything we've talked about is all in your book. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the, in part one, chapter one of your book, it's called titled Christian Renaissance, Why There Never Was a Reformation. I think oh. it's, a really, it's a really great way to start the book off because it does bring the book around full circle once you get to the end and how do we disciple nations. But it starts off with a um, helping us to recategorize our faith as Christians into what it actually is and what Christ intended it to be rather than what we have today. So it's almost <laughs> like we have to start again. So can you can you um, explain to the listeners, watchers, um, what you meant when you said that there never was a reformation? Okay, well, what I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't a movement at the time of the reformation. I'm not saying the reformers didn't do a great work. They did. I'm not saying I don't think what they did was a great work. I do. What I'm saying is that the term reformation is a misnomer. Right. They didn't reform. If they had reformed, they, they set out to reform the Roman Catholic Church. That, that attempt failed and it was a complete failure. If it hadn't been, there would exist today a church that is a reformed Roman Catholic Church. No such church exists. They didn't reform the church. What they did, the, the correct term for what the reformers did was ecclesial renaissance, a rebirth of the church. Now, that's what happened was a good thing. I'm not criticizing that. And, I, you know, I'm not interested in arguing about mere words. I, I've used the term reformation all my life. What I, or what, what I want to get over to people is that, look, they started again because the idea that they reformed the church can lead us astray into thinking that what we have to do today is simply reform Protestantism or whatever church we're in. But that won't work. We need a rebirth. We need a as I called it in that book, an exodus and conquest. You know, you're not, you don't reform Egypt. You, you have an exodus and you conquer the promised land, which I say is discipling the nations. And um, what I want to, why I've put it that way is to get people to think, look, if you think you're going to reform these apostate churches, you're dead wrong. The reformers never reformed the Roman Catholic Church. It's not reformed at all. Even though they had their own counter-reformation, it, it, it wasn't reformed. So to think that we can reform these apostate churches is wrong. And the reason is the Bible says they can't be reformed. It says when the salt has lost its saltiness, it is fit only to be what? Thrown out and trampled, trampled underfoot by men. And, and Jesus said, if you pour new wine into old wineskins, it's going to get wasted. You need new wineskins for the new wine. Now, I didn't come up with these things. These are the things that Jesus himself said. Now, either we believe Jesus and we take what he taught seriously or we don't. And he did not teach reformation of the church. Maybe we should cancel Jesus. I mean, he's yeah. saying some pretty intense things there. Maybe, he, maybe he's the next one that needs to be canceled. I'm sure he has been already. I'm sure, I'm sure they'd like to cancel Jesus. Um, he even talks absolutely. about separation, right? Sorry? Jesus talks about separation, like coming out of her. 
You know, there's yeah. multiple texts in the Bible of, of coming out. You know, yes, and, 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 and of course, ecclesia means those who are called out. But then, yeah. because of its, the word ecclesia is a political term. It is not a cultic term. It doesn't describe the meeting of people in some kind of um, devotional cult to, 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 to sort of practice and maintain the devotion of the deity, like, like in the mystery cults, such as Mithras, and Isis and things like that, which were very common in the Roman world, particularly Mithras. Um, ecclesia doesn't describe that at all. What an ecclesia describes is a, the body politic. And um, so this whole idea of the church as some kind of, well, I call it a cult, and I, actually I don't mean that in the sense of, in the sense that the term cult is mean, uh, used of, um, let's say, the Mormons and the JWs and the Moonies and things like that. I mean, it is, it's reduced to basically what is a reenactment society. Mm. And the purpose of the reenactment, because the faith is seen as basically being relevant to this upper story of reality, the way we experience it in a way in, in, in the real world is to reenact it in ritual form in these cults. Well, this is what, this is what the mystery cults was, but, were, sorry, but, but this is not what Christianity is. You won't find that view of Christianity in the Bible. Mm. And so we have to think, well, what does Ecclesia mean? And of course, it also has background in the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And Ecclesia, there, it's a political term. It is not a cultic term. Mm. Um, and so we have to say what's happening. And it's, it really is a completely different kind of social order. Now, the purpose of building this kingdom which is a, a completely different social order pursuing this kingdom is not it's not to escape and run away from the world it's not to to hide in a corner it's to be a light on a hill to demonstrate to the world so that these christian communities must be lived in the, the face of the world I, I once had a discussion with somebody and he said because of all the problems we're facing today we have to start building a secret church now, there may be times when, you know, people have gone into hiding, but generally speaking, that's not what we need to be doing. We have, we have to start living as a real social order in the face of the world so that the world will see that uh, obedience to God and structuring our societies around God's word produces a very different result from the failures of secular humanism. And as in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 2, 2 to 4, they come and say, teach us the way of the Lord. And the Lord goes forth from Zion and, and they beat their swords into pruning, uh, into pruning hooks, plowshares, sorry. And um, that's not gonna happen if, if, they're all, if we're hidden away, if we're running away from the world. So right. we have to be a community that is, lives its life in the face of the world, but is completely different, has a completely different set of values to the values of the world and those are the values of the kingdom of god the, the right values, because the in, Bible. In, in your book um you took some time to show the difference between um what we call now the the reformation and what they actually reformed um and that you talk about how a lot of the doctrine was reformed a lot of the um the you know, the bad Catholic dogmas and traditions that had crept in were, were cleaned up and, 
and uh, reconstitute it into something more faithful to, to what the Bible um, is talking about. But on the flip side of that, the, the how-to or the works of then what you believe was not cleaned up. So we carried on outwardly um, with something that looked quite similar to the Catholic Church, and the, the works weren't reformed. So when it comes to this exodus, if you, if you just clean up your doctrine, um, you're not necessarily going to be um, transforming the world if you don't then go and live that out Absolutely. Um, in, in the public sphere and what that, what that actually means, not just for your personal devotional life, but what does it mean when you go to work? What does it mean when you get into a position of power? What does it mean as a, as a ecclesia, as a body of people gathering together to do justice um, to, in a particular area to try to footstool an enemy somewhere? Um, you know, so what did we miss during that, uh, during that um, ecclesial well, I think, renaissance? Yeah. Well, look, let me start by putting it this way. When the Reformation happened in England, and I'm not saying it's exactly the same in all countries, but um, within a century of the Reformation, the state, was passing poor laws to help the poor and the sick who were no longer being looked after by the monastic system. Now, you know, the reformers saw the monastic system as having problems, and it did have problems, um, but it wasn't all bad. Um, it wasn't all good, but it wasn't all bad. But, and I'm not saying that the care of the poor and the sick under Roman Catholicism was without its problems, but you know, there is a line from the Reformation uh, in which grad eventually we see that um, a gap has opened up, something's missing. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the modern secular humanist answer to that problem is the welfare state and socialism. And that is an unmitigated disaster um, because that is not an answer to anything. It's, it's a ticket to hell. And anybody who reads in any history or, or somebody like Alexander Solzhenitsyn who had to live through that will right. make it clear just how much that is a ticket to hell. And, and um, you know, I think the problem here is that um, there's a whole side. I'm not criticizing what the Reformation did. What I'm saying is there's more to it than just solving, you know, cleaning up the doctrine. That is important. And I'm not saying the reformers did no good works. But here's the other thing that happened. Um, there were two reformations, the, re the magisterial reformation, you know, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, all these people. And then there was a radical reformation. Now, what's happened? over the course of the last 500 years is that it's the, the radical reformation has triumphed in Protestantism. Now, it's an interesting, it is an interesting thing. I, I, there's, a, there's an author called uh, Denis de Rougemont. He, he wrote a book called Love in the Western World. It was a very interesting book. And he basically argues that the Western idea of romantic love is a kind of a secularization and demythologization of the Cathar view of salvation. Now, Catharism was a radical uh, dualist sect mm. in the 12th and 13th centuries. 
And um, it's very interesting, but he claims that there is a line from the Cathar theology, which is dualistic, to the Radical Reformation, to the theology of the Radical Reformation. Now, the problem, problem with this is he never gave the references and showed how that worked, but he made the claim, and I find this extremely interesting, because what you have today under the success of the Radical Reformation is a re-emergence of this old dualistic perspective, which is what the Cathars had, which went back to what the, the Bogomils had, back to the Paulicians, back to the Massilians, all these sects that were highly dualistic, back to the, um, the Gnostics. And I, so I can't show you the roadmap of how this went from the Cathars to the Radical Reformation. All I'm saying is I find it really intriguing that de Rougemont made this claim. Unfortunately, a lot of his writings still aren't translated into English, they're in French. He was French-Swiss, French, Swiss. and um, he didn't give, in the books that are translated into English, he, he did not give a roadmap of how this happened, but he did make this claim. And now I find it intriguing because this is what's happened. This whole dualistic thing has become the, the dominant spirituality in Protestantism. So I find it quite intriguing, and I'm not sure how it happened, but that's what he claims. But certainly, whether it came from the Cathars or, or, or however it came, it is a major problem because it, it, it removes the Christian from his preserving influence in the world. Mm. And Jesus didn't say, um, go back to Jerusalem and um, set up some cults and do some rituals and um, just keep out of trouble and, uh, you know, just go along with the Romans and, um, you know, I'll come and get you when, it, when, when the time's right. When it gets really but bad. Just, first of all, it started, trouble started. I mean, the you know what in the fan straight away mm -hmm. because they were the the the, um, the the apostles were dragged before before the, the authorities say you're not to talk about this you're not to talk about this jesus thing uh no more and right. so oh, we can't, we can't and, and, and jesus you know jesus's kingdom right that's a political term a political statement not narrow-minded politics like did you vote conservative or liberal but it means <laughs> It means it was, it was something that it was a new kingdom that was transforming the old kingdom or displacing the old kingdom. It's and yeah. comes down to an authority issue. Yeah, right? authority. Like who's your final Absolutely. authority? Who's at the top? And I think that's where the the trouble starts. Absolutely, and it's because in in that time to say Jesus is Lord is an intensely political statement because Caesar is Lord. But when you go into they say, well, I'm Jesus is Lord and I'm a member of his ecclesia. This is highly treasonous because, you know, if, if you go to the road and say, well, I belong to this particular uh, lodge of um, uh, Mithras down there, it doesn't bother them. You know, Mithras doesn't challenge Rome. The problem with Christianity is that it challenges Rome. You say I'm a member of another ecclesia. I'm a member of the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. This is a highly political statement, and it's treasonous against Rome. And the the, um, the Christians were not persecuted for having uh, for worshiping Jesus in in their personal devotions. Uh, the Romans had no problem with that. 
The problem was that Jesus was Lord and they were members of his ecclesia. And this is a this is treason. It's like a red rag in right. Rome, or a bull because Rome didn't permit any group to organize politically apart from itself. It was it was very um, jealous that Rome was the political organism. Well, really of course, when comes a new king, comes a new law and a new uh -huh. rule. And yeah. that a lot of the time the, the old uh, law is being pushed out and, and the new law is coming in because it's a new king and a new kingdom. And, uh, and we've seen it happen so many times before, haven't we? And uh, like we even saw with, uh, there was a book recommendation that I, that I got from Susanna Roundtree on, on, I think on your Christianity and Society page, which said, uh, she said, uh, if you're looking for a book um, for how the Roman Empire was Christianized, then look for that Rodney Stark book, how the, oh, yeah. how the West yeah. was Christianized or something like that. And, yeah. and in that book, you can see how the Christians were living according to the law of their new Lord, even yeah. though they were still living in the land, quote unquote, which was quote unquote Caesar's land, although it's really the Lord Jesus's land, but there was a, there was a, a you know, a, a false king had set himself up against Christ, you know, but yeah, they lived according to Christ's law and they were, of course, um, you know, they had a hard time of it for a couple hundred years, but then eventually the tide turned, right? And I think that this is, um, that, well, this goes into the part two of your book, right? How the West was converted. Do you have any any more uh, historical, um, you know, how was, how was the West converted to Christianity? Well, let me just say, before we go to that, the point you just made is extremely important because what the Romans accused the Christians of was being imperium in imperio, in other words, social order within a social order, a kingdom within a kingdom. And it's very important that we see what we are doing as that. We are creating an alternative social order, not to escape the world, but because this social order has to take over the world, it has to, it has to conquer the world, not by force of arms, not, not in a military way, but it has to grow un, until the, 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 the nations of the earth come to Mount Zion and, and say, teach us the way of the Lord, because secular humanism, it will fail. It might. I mean, how long did... Uh, Soviet Union last 70 years. Too long. The children of Israel were in Babylon 70 years. It may do a lot of damage on the way, but it will fail. It yeah. cannot succeed. Man. Sorry, Psalm now we'll go on to the... Yeah. Sorry? So, Psalm 2 promises. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And Psalm I, 2, verse 4 and 5 is about to kick in. I say it all the time. And, and I think it's very important at the moment with what's going on now that we bear in mind Psalm, why do the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing. This is what's happened now, that the, uh, the world is raging against God. It's shaking its fist in God's face. I mean, you look at what's happening around the world. People are going, <laughs> they're shaking the fist in God's face. They say, well, oh, we don't believe in God. You know, I don't believe in Father Christmas. I'm not going around shaking my fist in his face, you know. You don't, you don't behave like that if you don't believe in something. The problem is the, the world hates God. And so, so what you've got is this shaking of the fist in God's face. And 
uh, you know, I've lost my thread, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were talking about the Christianization of the, of the Roman Empire and then how, of course, that brings... I went, you asked me about to come on to something and I, 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 I didn't get there. It was about my book. Um, I'm sorry, I, I filibustered myself out of the... Uh, what was the question you it, asked me? It was um, how the West was converted. Like, oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Sorry. Well... What got me around to thinking about this was some time back, a friend was preaching. He said, oh, we all have to go and live in the inner cities where all the crossroads of society connect and we can have most uh, effect there. And I was thinking about this. And um, when you think about how the West was converted, that's not what happened. It was actually the monasteries and the monks that converted the West. Now, they did the opposite. They went out into the wilderness, though it is true to say that often um, communities started building up around them because they actually developed the land. It wasn't all negative with the monasteries. There was a lot of good things done, a lot of knowledge not only preserved, but gained and science and things like this. We tend to, as Protestants, have a rather dim view of the monasteries. And I, I understand that. Uh, but it, it, there were good things as well. There were problems. The communism was a problem and, and the celibacy was a problem. Those, are, those go against biblical principles and there's right. no way around that. Um, but there were good things as well. And um, they actually, if you like, were the, um, the avant-garde in converting, in converting Europe. Um, and so we have to learn from the past. We have to learn from the good and we have to learn from the bad, from the right. successes and the failures. But what it seems to me we've got now is we have lost, you know, I know part of the book is talking about apostolic communities and this is a difficult one for Protestants for two reasons. They, they don't like to talk about apostles because they think all the apostles um, ended it all ended at the time of the end of the, the first century when the apostles died either the original 12 apostles died out and paul who wasn't one of the 12 apostles strictly speaking um and but you see the problem is they want to dispense with that so they then have to reinvent the category and they call it a missionary well the word missionary comes from the latin verb mito to send and the word apostle comes from the greek word apostle one who is sent so they mean the same thing so because we've got rid of a biblical category we then have to reinvent something to replace it now part of the problem is people see apostles in this kind of super authoritarian um pope sort of role and i don't believe that is how the apostles were and the other problem is of course the charismatic churches who have resurrected well, no, they haven't resurrected the biblical apostles. They've taken a term and they've imbued it with a highly hierarchical and authoritarian content that I don't believe is there in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And some of these charismatic apostles are utter tyrants. Mm -hmm. That is not what Jesus yeah. said to the apostles. And the Bible says, like Jesus says, of course, that if you're to be the greatest amongst uh, you, you should be a servant. Matthew 20. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's not, you see, I guess these apostles would say, oh, they are serving the people. A bit like any tyrant will say they're serving the people. 
but they're not. This, what is paramount? And I know this, I've seen it, and I, I know I talk to people who've been in churches like this. What is paramount in these churches is the apostles' position and that everybody actually submits to them. Now, I don't think these guys are apostles, actually. I think they're just Tim Pop popes, Tim Pop yeah. Um, it, authoritarian figures, but their type of service—they're serving up their um, their people on a plate to get eaten, right? <laughs> you know, yeah, that's yeah. the different type of serving. We just changed the meaning there, but well, because we talk about the problems with the leadership, right? Which is a huge problem. But you also mentioned uh, Christian Gnosticism in your book, mm. and um, like Christians would rather not use their minds. And I think that's what we see when you talk about the, the services are like mystery cults. It's all about yeah. uh, feelings and emotions, experiences. Like we go to church to experience the music and you kind of build each other up, things like that. And what? Then yeah, when, you start, when you want people to start thinking and start understanding these terms, like apostles, ecclesia, people aren't interested in that because... They just want the spiritual, the, the emotional, the feeling stuff. And I think that's a like a brick wall we're up against. Yeah. You can't get people to understand terms and, and use their minds. Yeah. I, I want to clear up something about Gnosticism, because the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. But the kind of knowledge the Gnostics were into is not what we think of as knowledge today. When we think of knowledge, we think of understanding of things, understanding of the world, or whatever we're looking into. That is not what Gnosticism meant. The knowledge that the Gnostics wanted were the names and the code words, the names of the um, uh, spiritual beings and the code words that would allow them to pass from one position on the scale of being to the next. That sounds very new age, actually. It, very, very occult and sort of mystical, yeah. yes. So the knowledge they had wasn't knowledge in the sense that we think of it today. It's knowledge of the names and the code words that enabled them to pass from one emanation to another, to trace their way back up the scale of being, to get back to, to the divine essence from which they believed they'd come. Now, that was about a different kind of... That was their gnosis, mm. then, that what they were trying to get at. And to allow themselves to escape the physical world by knowing all the correct terms and code words and passwords to, to enable them to escape from one level to the next as they went. Of course, we up. do see that sometimes in modern Christianity, especially with the hyper-charismatics. You, you know, you think about someone like the Bethel movement and, and they, they kind of have that kind of vibe about them, right? They're trying to uh, move their way up with these new, um, you know, things that have never been done before and sp hyper-spiritual sensations and, and, you know. Oh, right. Well, now I have to say, I have to frankly confess my ignorance of the Bethel movement. Well, that's fine. Not too sure. I, I've heard of it. I don't know much about yeah. it. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, it, 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 it's very, uh, very popular because of the fact that uh, it's all wrapped up around their music, which is excellent. But it's, you know, the doctrine in behind the music and then... Mm -hmm. And then even worse than that, the doctrine of the, the, the church itself is, is quite off. Now, I just I wanted to go back to um, to when we were talking about uh, apostles slash missionaries, same thing, um, and and the, the church. Now, <clears throat> we usually look at missionary movements in our modern uh, church 
day uh, as being people who are sent by the local congregation. But mm. what you're saying in, in your book is that it should actually be the other round. It should be as the apostle apostolic movement comes through, which is preaching and teaching and healing and people are getting saved and coming into Christ's kingdom, that then the church is planted. And you had a, um, uh, like an imagery from an old Jewish um, saying <laughs> with the snake. Did you want to start with the snake and then, and then explain what that means? <laughs> The, the what? The oh? Do you mean the um, that thing at the, the end? The, the head and the tail of the snake. Oh yes, I've got it here. Um, the, this is from um, a Jewish um, source, a Midrash Rabbah, and it's just one of the things in there. It's quite interesting. It says, and I quote: "The tail of the serpent said to the head, How much longer will you walk first? Let me go first.' The head replied, 'Go.'" The tail went and coming to a ditch of water, dragged the head into it. It encountered a fire and pulled the head into it and coming to thorns, dragged it among them. What was the cause of all this? Because the head followed the tail. So when the rank and file follow the guidance of the leaders, the latter entreat God and he answers their prayers. But when the leaders permit themselves to be led by the rank and file, they perforce must share in the visitation that follows. Unquote. Now, I put that in because what you've got today is a situation where the church has this stranglehold on anything. And this is a problem. Why I brought up the apostles issue is that um, I'm, this is experience of nearly 50 years of being in the church. The pastors and the teachers have a very narrow remit. They have all my life. And what I see and I've, I've seen throughout my life is that people with a real, what I would call an apostolic, a sense of apostolic mission, really want to seek the kingdom of God and the discipline of the nations. They're shut down all the time. They're ostracized. They're told to be, keep quiet. They're, they're, oh, they're, it's, the church makes it very difficult for these people. And the, the pastors and the elders and the teachers are in charge. Now, so with that, just to stop you there for a second, at the very least, right, even if, you know, because that, that language is like you get shut down, but at the very least, they're not understood and they're not supported and they frustrate themselves and because they're not able to do anything and then they, they kind of leave. That's right. They have a very hard time. With it. That's why I mentioned that I came across this statement and it said, quote, the the churches are not places for serious Christians to be, unquote. Now, I think that was your controversial uh, <laughs> you know, chapter title. Yes, I can't, I can't remember where I read that. I thought I did, and I looked, and I couldn't find it. But that's not my, it's what I, I, I read that, but I thought it's so true. Serious Christians have a hard time in church unless they are wanting to promote this whole view of the faith we've been talking about which is very ecclesiocentric right. very focused on the pastors and teachers now the problem is that if you look at what goes on primarily in the churches it's all about the churches and quite honestly it's often all about the leaders and their authority and this is the problem with these these apostles in the charismatic churches they're obsessed with their own authority what we're supposed to be obsessed with is the kingdom of god and the discipling of the nations and this wider sort of vision for the um, expansion of the kingdom of God and the discipling of the nations gets a hard time in churches. 
And what's happening is that these pastors and teachers, they're not really apostles. The apostles were the people who went out into the world and took the faith around the world. Uh, I mean, Paul went into the Greek or Roman world, uh, but the other apostles, they went to India and uh, Arabia and all over the place. And actually the Nestorian church was a really missionary oriented church. It went, it went faster and further in the early centuries of the, um, the, 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 the Christian faith than, than the West did. It went right through to China. Um, and so these are the people who went out taking the church and, and, and the, um, if you like, the, the assemblies of Christians came in the wake of this. You know, the, 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 um, you, didn't, you didn't go and set up a church um, in, in, you know, Asia Minor, wherever Paul was going, and then, you know, say, well, we'll appoint somebody as an apostle, which is what tends to happen in the charismatic churches. And in a sense, the, the, the Episcopal bishop is a bit like an apostle. It's their version of an apostle. What happened was the apostles, those with the vision for expanding the kingdom and, and discipling the nations, they went out preaching the gospel. And um, people became Christians and the assemblies came as a result of that. So this whole thing was apostolically led. Now, I'm, my apostles here, I, I think the apostles went out in communities. I, they didn't go out on their own. Jesus sent them out in twos, if you remember. And um, Paul, when he went on his missionary journeys, there, were, there was a community. He had a sort of an apostolic team. They were not necessarily all together all at the same time. But we see him talking about, you know, all these people that were part of his apostolic team. They were part of his apostolic team. Uh, probably Thomas in India had a similar sort of thing. Now, one of the things I learned at my own cost in my life is that, uh, um, now I'm not comparing myself with an apostle here, but I'm just saying going out on your own is quite difficult. It's best, at least if there's two of you if you're going on some kind of mission. Um, and that's why I say, I think these were apostolic teams, apostolic communities. And what really this was about was people with a vision and a sense of mission for the kingdom of God and the discipling of the nations. It wasn't about authority structures. It was about brethren working together for the kingdom of God. Now, this is completely different to what you've got in the charismatic churches with their obsession with apostles and hierarchy and authority. It's not about that. It's about the, all authority is being given to Christ. He's the one with authority. Mm -hmm. We are his ambassadors. We are to go and um, uh, preach his word, his claims. It's, it's not about us. But in the churches, you don't get this. What you get is obsession with the church, with the cultus. And one of the problems is this. If you have a vision of Christianity in which it's not about the whole of life, it's not about discipling the world, it's not about discipling the nations and expanding the kingdom of God, it's about what we do together in church when we have our meetings, then all the meaning of the Christian faith gets channeled into this one narrow area. And then everything in that little area takes on an exaggerated importance. And that's why churches split up over the most trivial and ridiculous things. They're attributing too, too much importance and they don't have this wider vision for discipling the nation and the kingdom of God. Now, 
in this context, I want to make one observation, and that is this, that we have to be careful when we talk about mission, that we're not seeking to clean up secular humanism, right. but to advance the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes what happens is that um, the church sees sometimes social needs. And so it's a, what it tends to do is clean up secular humanism. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't try to, to do what they can, where they can, but that is not the same thing as advancing the kingdom of God. Right. Um, I think you have, to, you have to come to a recognition as a Christian or a realization that the state is not neutral and that it is under, in fact, a different law, which is, in fact, under a different God. I, I want yeah. to actually um, get Pete in on, on this because what we're experiencing here, because I think we're a little bit further ahead than you um, for, for the bad part when it comes to um, being forced into separate societies. Um, mm. You know, we, we talk all the time with all the lockdowns and everything and then vaccinated versus unvaccinated and what the, can this group do and then this group can't. And of course, there's a natural, um, there's a natural uh, fork in the road where there's groups of people going in two different directions here. And we talk about that being a bad thing. And I do think it is a bad thing. But I think also it's an inevitable thing in order for us to then go in the correct direction. What you're going to end up having is two societies. Now, Pete... Um, he has a, uh, Pete and his family have a, a, a leather shop, right? So they, they sell uh, leather gear and it's very good and you can get it shipped to England uh, <laughs> if you need anything leather, right? So, you know, you need a new pair of welding gloves or a leather cap or something, it can, it can make it to you. But, but um, on, online, I think this is why the, the, the idea that you're talking about in your book and that you've talked about in other books, and that is happening within the, the larger Christian reconstruction movement, for the most part, is also these same ideas are being found in other places that don't have the same influence that we do. Obviously, within Christian recon, we're, we're quite, we influence each other quite a lot, right? But then you're seeing it outside. So, for example, there's a new social media uh, platform called Gab, and I think you signed up right. recently. But the founder of Gab is a Christian, and he's been um, doing a lot of really good work when it comes to parallel societies. And and Pete and, and family, you, what did you do on on Gab? Tell, tell us what happened on on well, with your leather shop. Just uh, we started advertising on there, and uh, immediately we got um, results. Like we made a lot of money just because there's other Christians out there. And now there's, uh, we do, we make leather products, so we need leather. So we came in contact with somebody that does leather. They, they actually tan the hides, but he didn't mm -hmm. have exactly what we needed. So now he contacted a machinist that's in that society also, and he's making a machine to get the hides proper to use for us, you know, and that, that's, <laughs> that's just on a, uh, like a money-making thing, like mm -hmm. economy changing. That Developing the economy, yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, it, healthcare. Of course, it does come. It does come under God's command to make sure that we're not stealing from one another, right? The eighth mm -hmm. commandment is one of the worst broken commandments in society with fiat money, right? So, yeah. you know, we can we can actually base our um, our monetary system based yeah. on God's law on the truth. Right. And and then, of course, you, you have to you, we have to live. Paul was a tent maker. We have to live. We have to work. If you won't work, you won't eat. 
mm-hmm. right? But at least the state can't be, um, you know, stealing that away from you through inflation and all kinds of things yeah. and using the right, you know, you're being smart about it. Yeah, but, but, th- but that parallel society is already happening. And yeah, I, I think it's, it's very, I think that's where right. the persecution is, like people think we're being persecuted now. But I think it's interesting that we will be persecuted when that parallel society starts affecting all of society. Then they'll start cracking down and saying, hey, enough. And I think that's what happened in the early church. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think you're right. I think, I think both will happen at the same time. As the kingdom of God grows, a lot of people will want to come into it. But those who don't will want to persecute it. Yeah. And there will, you know, it says through much tribulation, we enter the kingdom of God. And um, I think that uh, that will happen. But of course, there will be a battle. Uh, we are assured of the victory, but there can be no victory without a battle. But I think that's very good because I think that um, business and economics are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's absolutely vital that we model to the world a, a, a proper view of that, a Christian view in which, I mean, I think today, under the influence of the re- withdrawal of Christianity as an influence in society, much of the business world is just reverting to piracy, right? Mm-hmm. To be quite honest, and we have to model a different way of doing it. So these are very important. I mean, the business and the economic side of things are very important. They're all it, it, the kingdom of God is about the whole of life. Mm-hmm. There's the arts. There's the sciences. There's uh, welfare. There's uh, adjudication or arbitration, um, healing. And, and medicine, um, and of course, highly important education. We can have a very great effect in all these areas. And you know, when I walk down the street of the Anglican church I used to go to, you walk down it and you see, this, you see the, the church at the end. When you get to the church, on the right, there's a large building there that's now a restaurant. Mm. And, it's been various things over the years. Of course, it was it was a, it was a church school originally, mm. but the church school shut down and they sold the building off. There were other buildings around that part of the, the church. Now I'm not saying everything's about having buildings, but the problem is the building was a two. The point I'm trying to make right. is our education system came out of the Christian faith and the work of Christians, as did our medical system. But what happened once the state took over and hijacked them was that the Christian principles started being stripped out. And so that now we've ended up, I have a photograph on my Facebook of something that was taken. It must've been maybe in the 1950s. Nurses starting a day's work. Okay. In the very early NHS, mm. all knelt round a table praying. Wow. Mm start now that was that was the hospital that and, was just and, after the takeover right because now they they still in many ways in the nhs i'll sit around the table well, figuring out who they what, can abort next what but, do we call yeah. nurses sister where's that come from that's that comes from it comes from a monastery it comes from our christian history but it's all been stripped out mm. and the result of the christianity being stripped out of our social fabric is the putrefaction that you were talking about. You remove the salt, it's just, it stinks to high heavens now. Well, what's happening nowadays, right? 
I mean, less and less people are trusting the health system, right? With what's what's mm -hmm. happening now. You can, you can see that and yeah. people are very yeah. nervous. People don't even dare go to the hospital. Yeah. People don't know who to believe oh. or who to trust. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's all corruption. I think it's 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 destroying itself as mm -hmm. we speak. Mm -hmm. And now is the time for Christians to step so, up yes. and step in. So we, we have to understand the importance that we have to be um, the alternative social order that that is God's will for this world. God's will for this world is not for the godless state to take over and run a fascist regime <laughs> like we faced. That's not God's, that's God's will is for his kingdom to grow and the nations to convert to Christianity. And uh, that's what we've got to be doing. And we've got to be doing this by building real communities. And, you know, there are all, all kinds of ways you can do that. I think, I think what you're doing with your ministry to the, the, the needy on the streets is a good example of that. Mm. I think it's really important. But it, there are all different ways that this can happen. It can happen via a school or some kind of uh, healing or medical uh, thing. It's even some kind of arts thing. There are all kinds of ways that these things can happen. But ideally, I know we don't live in an ideal world, so I don't want you, I, I understand that. But just to say, just to give an example, ideally, what we need to be doing is building communities that have all these things, because what we need to do is start, is, is start developing a community that is a civilization in seminal form. Right. That everything about what the civilization should be is there to grow out of this seed. So we, we don't want to leave anything out of this. Now, obviously, people have different ministries. They have different callings, different things they can do. And sometimes you might something might start as an education ministry. It might start as a healing ministry. It might start as a you know, help to the to the poor on the streets or all number of things, an artistic community. Um, and they're all good and we need to do those things. The more of these areas of life we can get together so that this represents a real holistic kind of community, the better. Because, mm -hmm. because it has to grow from that into a real social order. The problem is that um, people don't think this is possible. But it is. It, it's, it's, it's really possible. And um, it will happen eventually. If it doesn't happen in our lifetime, well, it's it will happen before. in a different It's happened before, and when Christ is in it, it happens regardless it, of what anyone says. Yeah, yeah. We see it, it, Sorry, we see it what's happening. Like you mentioned what we're doing on the streets. But we see like providing the homeless with a decent place to live, um, mm. detox for those that are addicted. Um, you start mentioning about doing something about that, and everybody always brings up, "How can we get the government involved?" Mm -hmm. Oh, it's 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 a mindset that you cannot yeah. make people understand. Why not just us do it? And our question is not how can we get the government involved. How can we get the church involved? Yeah, yeah, individuals. Yeah. But they all say, "Let the government do it." Mm -hmm. And you That's can't because yeah, because Christians. I mean, it's this is very common here in in the uk this is i would say this is probably worse than it is in the northern america socialism is a big part of people's um 
outlook, quite honestly. I mean, even the Conservatives, well, I don't really could call them Conservatives anymore, to be honest, but it's all socialist. So the, the real issue is how do you get the state out of these areas and, and concentrate on its legitimate mm -hmm. role, which is public justice? And of course, the problem is when the state's involved in all these areas, the one thing it should be doing, public justice, becomes totally compromised by its near total involvement in the whole of life. So um, th this is very practical. It's very down to earth. Now, what you're doing in some ways is the kind of ministry that the monasteries used to provide for people. And it's so with many things, you know, um, and so what we need to have is a broader vision of the kingdom of God and, and ministry. And this is what happens in the churches, that they cannot conceive of anything that's Christian mission work outside of the narrow confines of the church. So missionary movements under the, under the, under the leadership of the church have become merely church planting organizations. Right. And so all you're doing is exporting this defective view of the Christian faith around the world. And that's a disaster. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to have a new way of looking at this in which the purpose is the discipling of nations right. and the expansion of the kingdom of God. And that has to, that is about um, creating an, an alternative social order to this social order of, of death that surrounds us basically. Yeah, and you know, I think you can you can definitely see that. Uh, and I would point people to go to your website, which is kuiper.org. Um, oh yeah, your publications and the books that you've written on there really do cover quite a wide um, spectrum when it comes to how to deal with uh, the problems that we have in this world. You're not just focusing on you know oh, people don't believe in Jesus anymore. You're focusing on the the, of course, the outworking of what it looks like that in society yeah. people don't believe in Jesus anymore and how to fix it, right? So you've got books on um, of the politics of God and the politics of man. That was my, that book was my entry point really into what we would understand as theonomy today and, and, and then in the proper mm -hmm. sense of what theonomy means, grassroots, bottom-up type of theonomy, not mm -hmm. top-down status theonomy, which is what most people most Christians think when you say that you're a theonomist, they think, oh, you're a statist. Um, well, that's because, you see, they, they can't conceive of doing anything outside of the state in which they really live and think they have their being. So right, right. they cannot conceive of these things outside of the influence of the state. So when you start talking about these things, they assume, well, it must be to do with the state. But no, it doesn't have to be. Um, uh, so yes, uh, absolutely. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah, and, and you, you have other books like uh, The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained, The Political Economy of a Christian Society. There's a book um, that was that is a Kuiper.org book, but it's not, um, you didn't author it by Hugh Fleming, which is the Hippocratic um, oh, yes. Medicine, The Problem. That's a very good, it's not a large book, that is a very good book. Very and good. Into, um, you know, how our health, our health, you see, the state didn't create our altruistic health, or what we think of as our altru altruistic health service. It hijacked the ones that Christians right. created and then started wrecking it. Yeah, same with, which is same what with secular it. humanism does, isn't it? It takes something yeah. good and, and flushes yeah. it down the toilet. Um, there is the blood sucker. 
Yeah, you, you have a, a number of books in there that really speak to the church, which is is good too. Christianity and law, and then the Christian Passover, uh, agape feast or ritual abuse. This is talking about the the uh, how we in our yeah. Is we do. I know. I think union, that's, right? that issue for me is important because that was a central. If you call it, I don't know if ritual is the right word. That was a central thing that ch that Christians did when they got together in the assemblies, they celebrated the Agape feast, which is the Christian Passover. It's not the Jewish Passover. Mm. Um, it's the Christian Passover. Now, the interesting thing about that is that um, that the fact that it was done as a meal, it, it, it put a, it stamped a very family, the, 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 the Christian Ecclesia is a real family. It was really important. But what happened was by the middle or just after the middle of the first millennium, around about 600 AD, two church councils had banned the agape in church buildings. And they said you could have them in your own house, but you couldn't have them in church buildings anymore. But the effect of that ban was that they fell into disuse. And what they did, they took, they extracted from it this bread and wine ritual. Mm. And what that happened then, it, well, it wasn't a ritual. It was part of the meal. It all happened together. But by extract, extracting that out, they turned it into a ritual mm -hmm. that is controlled by a clergyman. And this is one of the real problems we have. That Because what we, we talk about pastors and teachers today and elders, the problem is the creation of clergymen. And this is what, this is what happened. After the subapostolic age, there, there was a real, um, uh, well, even during the subapostolic age, there was a real issue about how churches recognized traveling ministers. You see, ministry in the New Testament was primarily itinerant. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean they only stayed a few days. Paul stayed nearly two years in Ephesus, I think it was. But it was an itinerant missioner, an itinerant ministry, uh, largely. And so the question was, how do we know whether these people, and if you look in something like the Didacti, which is a very ancient Christian um, doctrine, Christian manual, it, there are some really kind of balmy ideas about how, you know, it, it says if a prophet comes and he stays more than one or two nights, he's a false prophet or a false apostle. Well, Paul stayed nearly two years in Ephesus. False so how apostle. does that figure? Well, they were trying to they were trying to deal with this issue about how we recognize who are genuine, um, uh, gen have genuine callings and, and genuine ministries. Now, that's a, that's a fair that's a fair issue. It has to be dealt with. But the way it was solved, the the, the remedy that was applied eventually was worse than the problem. Right. And the, the remedy that was applied was this. You tie office to ministry. Yeah. You tie ministry to eldership so that the eldership becomes the one who controls ministry. And that was the birth of clergymen. That's not what happened in the Bible. Not all ministers were elders and not all elders. Um, well, an elder had to be apt to teach and he had to shepherd, but it didn't mean that he was um, what, you know, and by definition, it wouldn't have been one of the uh, itinerant ministers. But that tying of, of, of eldership to ministry created this problem where then we had clergymen who controlled all the ministry. And what they tended to do was ritualize it. And so everything went through them. Now, the issue in the end through that 
has been a disaster. And, and when I use the word clergyman, I'm not just using this of the traditional churches that wear dog collars and fancy frocks and things like that. It's the same in the charismatic and the free church. They may not call them clergymen, but it's effectively what they are. And that's what these apostles are. They're just effectively bishops, jumped up elders, who get to bully a load of churches around instead of one church. But they're not what the Bible talks about when it's talking about apostles, people with um, a, a, a vision and a commitment to, the, to discipling the nations and, and expanding the kingdom of God. You just don't see these in these, this in these denominations. Even the missionary organizations are largely now just church planting organizations, not kingdom um, building and nation discipling organizations. Not necessarily out there to, to change culture, just oh. to, yeah. Yeah, I know of one missionary organization where um, it was put that the purpose of mission was um, to disciple nations and the Great Commission. And one of the people in the organization objected to this. We No, we are not a Great Commission organization. We are a church planting organization. <laughs> now, you know, how, how bonkers can it get? I'm sorry, I don't know. By bonkers, yeah. I mean, do you know, do you use that term? Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. insane can it get, really. And, and it, was, it, was, it was the apostolic missions that led the way. What we've got today is pastors and leaders, pastors and teachers leading the way. And all they're doing is leading us into a ditch. The mm. blind leading the blind into a ditch. And we have to get over this. And the problem is because churches have got into this shape and not reformable, we have to start again. Yeah. I don't think there's any way around that. The reformers did not reform the Roman Catholic Church, they started again, and we have to as well. But I think we need to have a bigger vision than just ecclesial renaissance. This has to be a renaissance of the, the Christian faith in its fullness. Yeah, and I think it's important for people who are, um, who are in, you know, in, in ministry or something like that that do feel this way, they feel um, you know, hamstrung by the denomination or something like that. But it's important to remember that if God has given you permission um, you don't have to ask for permission from anyone else. Obviously, there should be, you know, you should be there should be brothers around you to be able to to lead you and help you. And but but it's, but it's a servant type of leadership and not a domineering type of leadership. Yeah. You know, so that's what one thing I really appreciate about you actually is that um, I've you've been able to help me over the last few years to be able to really understand what uh, in a lot better way what my calling is and and how to work that out without um without asking for permission or without trying to um do it under the confines of the um of the quote-unquote evangelical church which is difficult it, it, it's, it's now, if difficult, you do it's that difficult. if you if you do that they will try to clip your wings yeah and and this is what i found it seems to be that the main main purpose of these um boards to decide who if somebody's got a ministry is basically to sift out to sift out anybody with real vision and leadership in fact the church of england admit that what they're looking for primarily is managers mm. not people with leadership and by leadership i don't mean bosses somebody who is a leader he leads by showing the way he doesn't drive from behind a boss drives from behind 
but who have vision and leadership, they're not looking for that. They're looking for managers and the consequences that they're managing their own decline very well. It is a decline and it's a well-managed decline, but it's, it's, it's becoming a precipitous decline now. Um, and, you know, a, a shepherd in, the, in, bi in biblical times, a shepherd led and his sheep followed. Our, our view of uh, shepherding is using a dog to round, people, to round them up mm -hmm. and corral them. Mm -hmm. it's, a different, it's a different view of it. Yeah. I, think there's a, I think there's a different cultural idea of shepherding going on there. Um, and most of these churches are authority structures that try to keep control, but all they do it is strangling the life out. Those with vision and commitment to a, a broader vision just get strangled in these places. And quite honestly, um, that's why we have to we we have to start again. We mm -hmm. we and it's got to be more than just an ecclesiastical renaissance. It has to be a renaissance of the whole faith, and the faith applies to the whole of life. It has to include business, the arts, sciences, medicine, um, arbitration, healthcare, um, uh, uh, education. The whole thing, the whole gamut of life. Yeah. is what the Christian faith is. There's nothing of what it truly means to be human that, it, that, that is not uh, essentially to, about our Christian faith. And we have to have that broad vision um, because we haven't been put here to sit, sit tight in a little huddle, wait for the end. We've been put here to disciple the nations. I mean, not to make disciples from among the nations, but to disciple the nations. Yeah. That's a, that's a massive task, but isn't it a glorious idea that we disciple the nations? It's something to get really fired up about and really um, excited about. Yes, you go, you go to church and you just get it all knocked out. You get the stuffy knocked out of your can, church. Can do sometimes, yeah. Too depressing for me. Yeah. So if somebody... <laughs> so this has been a really good conversation today. Um, I, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, um how like you're, you're getting pretty good with some of this tech stuff now right i mean you, we, you're, you're getting pretty good with all the techie type of stuff now right oh techie yeah you're, oh, like, you're, you're, you're more able confidence to in me than i have i have to say it's got well you, i mean I, I would say you know you're you're able obviously to do a lot more than answer an email right which i'm of course i'm sure that uh if anyone was to send you a email through um the kuiper.org website yeah. you get it but then of course you know most people don't do the email anymore so i know that no. you've been well you can contact me via yeah. the kuiper foundation's contact page yeah or you can i am on facebook and on messenger um I don't think I'm that hard to contact. I don't no, I think it's actually quite easy to contact on Facebook yeah. Messenger. So you, you can add Stephen as a friend on there. And then also yeah. you have a couple of groups. One's called Christianity and Society. Oh, yes. Christianity and Society, a Facebook group. And uh, there, are, there are a few groups that I'm a member of. But Christianity and Society is one that I, I run. And the purpose of that is to talk about these kinds of issues. Um, uh, so yes, I'm, I'm on a few other. A few, well, I'm on a lot of groups. I've had to forgot how many groups I'm on. 
to yeah. be quite honest. Because I'm on all kinds of Because you're, you're so very techy. <laughs> that's why. That's no, why we're on all the groups. I, I just got, I, I was dragged onto Facebook by my family. I, I said I would never go on Facebook. And they kept saying, you need to go on Facebook. I said, I'm not going on Facebook. I refused. And then they kept saying, look, you go onto Facebook, you will be able to network with people. And I thought, what's networking? Apparently, it just means meeting people online. And that's fine. I don't have any problems with that. I actually did go on Facebook in the end. I went on there kicking and screaming at the, at the behest of my family who said it would be good for me. And in actual fact, I have found that it has been it, it has been good. Look, there's a positive and a negative, negative side to Facebook. I don't deny the negative side. The negative but side is, if you is use it properly. And it's fact checkers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But if you use it properly, it yeah. can be very positive. Yeah. The, the trouble is it takes a while to learn how to use yeah. it properly. Yeah, the fact checkers, that's just a load of nonsense. Yeah. That is just uh, censorship. Yeah. And some people have been knocked off Facebook. Um, I'm just and trying. To be honest, I don't know why I haven't. But what I do is I purge my Facebook page. Every now and then I purge it of all those things that... <laughs> might cause problems and start again that might be why i've well, there you I've, go. I've, I've, um, I've survived i don't know i am on gab as well but to be quite honest i, I need to he didn't work very well when i first went on i i, I mean he may work well in america getting better yeah takes time yeah, but gotta get used to it yeah I, I i ought to go on there and do more on gab actually so now I have to get you on Twitter Spaces to have conversations live online. So we'll get we'll we'll work on that because I'd like to get some. Are you on Are you on Twitter? Scott? Yeah. So I have some. You know, uh, I'm on there primarily for the Bitcoin because there's a big oh. Bitcoin community there. But also um, there's a, a thing called Twitter Spaces where you can get on. You can start talking live to people. It's almost like a big room oh, where see. everyone can hear what everyone's saying, and and then we can record. Are you on that. there as well, Pete? Are you on yeah. Twitter? Oh, Pete's not. No, I'm not a Twit. Yeah, he's not a twit. <laughs> you know, you know, you know they're going to. You know that there's plans to merge um, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Are they going to call it You Twit Face? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be a good name for it. Well, Stephen, it's been a really good conversation. Thanks for coming on our show. It, and, it's uh, a pleasure. I'm always happy to come on and talk. All right, so that was uh, author Stephen C. Perks uh, of the Kuiper.org great conversation we had yes. with him uh it was like that guy has so much information we're gonna do right? more often. we're gonna do more often yeah. pete was saying that we should do that do more often but shorter podcasts yeah. but i think that if you tried that then you'd end up just having more longer podcasts it's a possibility right? highly likely yeah but we should talk to him more yeah he's, and he's got a lot of knowledge and and for all you uh, Christian recons out there who are interested in getting into the conversation, it would be good if we could actually make the Twitter spaces thing happen uh, sometimes. Um, so, you know, you have to bite your tongue, hold your breath and sign up for Twitter if you're not on it already and yeah, get on there. But it's yeah. a great platform to be able to stop and talk and, and all that stuff. So, all right. So this has been the Postmill podcast with Scott and Pete and mm -hmm. Stephen. Right on. Peace. Thanks for watching.